Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. I would wake up with anxiety and fear of like just dealing with the day. It was about feeling normal. Like what a breath does for me today is what the pills did. And then I could step foot outside my door and not be afraid for a couple hours until the pills would start to wear off. And then the obsession of the mind would start to come again. Hi, my name is Mark Groves and I'm obsessed with understanding human behavior and why we do what we do. In this podcast, I interview the world's most brilliant minds and hearts where I get to explore alongside you every subject you can imagine relating to our human experience and how we relate. It is my deepest intention that we all learn how to create the life and love that we've always dreamt of. Now, before we get rolling, make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any episodes. And one ask that I have, and an amazing way that you can help support the podcast is by wherever you listen to it, giving it a five-star review and a written review. With all that said, let's dive in and transform our lives. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Mark Rose Podcast. Today, I am joined by my good buddy, Donnie Starkins. Welcome. Thank you, brother. It's an honor to be here. Dude, so happy to have you here. Your story. I think it's one of the stories for the ages. And you're still in the middle of it. Isn't that great? It's still being written. But yeah, a lot of lot of self-inflicted adversity and hard times and self-destruction early on, for sure. Seems to be somewhat the uh, journey of the human experience very often, isn't it? So grateful for it all. So grateful for it all because it's the reason why I'm sitting here with you right now. We've talked about this multiple times. You were a guest on our podcast for two episodes back to back. One just got released today, which is cool. Yeah, it got released today. And now here we are. And I'm a guest on yours, which is, and it's an absolute honor. I acknowledged you early on on my podcast and just telling you like how much of a impact you've made on my life. It's been like seven years. How long have you had the podcast since 2015, 16? 
Yeah, 17 or 8, yeah, somewhere around Yeah, there. I, mean, I feel like it's been a while. And just, I mean, the the wisdom, the, the relationship advice in the relationship, walking through a relationship, breaking up all of it. You've just been there it's with been me. The journey. Yeah, we connected and met in the flesh once at Wellspring yeah, back right. in the day when they Yours, were. That's like 2018. Probably. Yeah. Something like that. I've told you this also, like I have a, I'm a, I'm a coach. I have a coaching client list that I send all of your podcast episodes that I listen to that just rock me. I send them to all my people. So the ripple effect that you are making, you probably don't even understand the impact that you're making on this world. I don't think we do because of technology and just how many people we're reaching, but man, you've changed my life and enriched my life in so many ways. Brother, I appreciate that and fully receive that. And thank you for sharing it. You never know how people are going to be brought into your life. You also never know when you're going to be sitting across from someone. And I think that's the beauty of following our hearts, following the call, following whatever it is, the desire to heal and grow and change. And uh, it brought me to your podcast, which was such an honor to be on with you and Darren. Yeah, I'm so happy to have met you through this process as well. I wanted to you to share your story of healing and change and transformation because you know, I think we really learn through witnessing other people's path or hearing about other people's path. Because, you know, I think often we don't know we can do something till we hear someone else does it, mm. which is, of course, the framework of your guys' podcast, Comeback Stories. So, yeah, I guess it's like, what is your comeback story? I feel like I'm on Comeback Stories hosting. Uh, <laughs> what is, like, what is the sort of, like, set us up early as to what brought you to that space where you said self-destruction, self, all that stuff? Yeah. So I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona and grew up my whole life playing sports, playing athletics, specifically baseball. I played baseball all the way up until my senior year at Arizona State, where my 15 games into my senior year, I had a traumatic knee operation. It was a cadaver transplant of my meniscus. I was the first person in Arizona to ever have this procedure. This doctor, the head orthopedic surgeon at the time at Arizona State really sold this this surgery to me really well. And he said, you have the knee of a 90-year-old man. You're going to have to have your knee replaced in a couple of years. It's unheard of to have your knee replaced at 22, 23 years old. However, there is this new alternative. It's been done seven times across the country. It's been a success. And if it all goes well, it'll be like having a new knee. And you might even be able to play again at some point. This is the head orthopedic surgeon at ASU. I'm a baseball player on this team. He's not going to fuck me over. Right. Right. He's, yeah. he's got my best interest. And so I just, I, I never got a second opinion. I just said, okay, let's do it. And the day that I woke up from that surgery, I knew that baseball was over for me and I would never play again. I remember waking up in this hospital bed. It was completely dark. I was alone. I had a morphine drip. It would go off every 10 minutes and every nine minutes, I'm just like pushing it. Yeah. Yeah. And this was pre-addiction. This was like, I needed it for the pain. I was so screwed. I mean, I looked down at my leg and just from the massive signs and scars of trauma to the unbearable pain, like I knew Baseball was over for me. And so from that day and for many years after, that's where my world got turned upside down from a life of addiction early on. So I'm a baseball player. I don't really have another plan. My, yeah. All my identity is wrapped up into this. That's how I You're got like major leagues. Yeah. I mean, that. that was like, at least I'm going to go, I'm going to do everything I can. And typically like back in the day, Arizona state was a very reputable, they've, they've fallen a little bit, but if you played for them, you would get a chance at least to go to the minors and give it a run. And so that was the goal. And so for that to be uprooted and not having any kind of plan, and I got it's all like my value. of a whole identity. Oh. I mean, I know a lot of elite athletes when that, when they retire, there's that. But to have it taken away, dude, 
Yeah. And so also to go back in and this, this was identified later on after doing a lot of work on myself, but understanding that I got so much validation through my dad, through performance where I wasn't maybe getting it in other ways, or there wasn't ways that I felt safe. So I would get it through performance and that's where I would get my validation. So for one day for that to be completely stripped of me, well, of course, like, you know, and then on top of it, this traumatic surgery, I'm bedridden for a month and a half. I have to drop out of my classes my senior year because I couldn't Holy even, damn. I couldn't even get out of bed. I would take a shower like every three days and just getting up and crutching over to the shower and trying to lift my leg over the shower. It would wipe me out for like a day. What Completely just done. Like with that, I'm guessing wasn't a typical response. Like even if you get MCL stuff, usually people are riding a bike, I think later that week, right? To keep the mobility. But with this, like, was it just, a complete rejection of it? Like, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I know like when they go in to do that surgery, they have to actually take off your kneecap, like break off your kneecap to go in to do the surgery. So they cut your patella tendon. Yeah. So they, so it's, it's massive. And I mean, the the way my knee looked, my knee was like swollen bent. And so part of the rehab process was to straighten it. So I would sleep in this CPM machine that would extend and bend your leg for half the night. And then the other half, I would try to sleep and I was all whacked out. I was taking 80 Percocet a week for a month straight. And so I would have these dreams like I was fighting and my knee is stuck bent, like in the middle of the night, kick my leg out and extend it out like I'm kicking in a fight. Oh gosh. And then I would just be like, it was the worst pain I've ever felt in my life. And I'm crying my eyes out. My mom's trying to take care of me. She doesn't know whether to call 911 or what to do. Yeah. And so like a month and a half later, I, I turned the corner pain wise, but this, I was taking 80 Percocet a week for a month straight. And then the doctor just cut me off cold Turkey. There was no weaning off process. It was just like done. So about a month and a half it after seem I, good. no, man, right. I turned the corner pain wise. My mom, I moved back in with a new friend and that friend has a roommate and that roommate is a pharmacy tech of the pharmacy his dad owns. And so he's just like stealing massive amounts of Vicodin, Percocet, Xanax, Valium, right? And I can visualize like on our coffee table in our living room, this big bowl. It looked like a Trix bowl of just every pill you could imagine. We, you know, he was making a ton of money selling them, but for us, we were his roommates. So he was just hooking us up. So I kind of walked into this perfect storm after baseball's over for me and I don't even know what I'm doing and yeah, I, I go into that house and that started basically like a, a good six, seven, eight year run of not everyday destruction, but just complete lost, a complete lost soul. Wow. Yeah. How did you even get to a place where there was an end to that? Like when you're in it, is it really just the, like, I don't want to feel lost? Is Was that what was feeding the, I mean, the pain, of course, the literal pain. But then when it moved from literal pain to emotional pain, is that what was feeding the constant? Yeah, I didn't know it at the time. But yeah, I mean, that was what was driving it. There was a God-shaped hole in my heart and this whole loss of my identity, right? That it had been completely stripped of me. I didn't have any tools, coping tools or understanding how to deal with this or deconstructing myself post-baseball and bringing this new person. And I had no clue what I was doing. So my bottom, you would think, would be overdosing once in Rocky Point, Mexico. That wasn't my bottom. So you did overdose. <clears throat> I overdosed, yeah. On, on, I mixed a couple of different painkillers and went completely stiff. And the, the friend that I went with to Mexico left me there, left me at the emergency, drove me to the emergency room, left me there. 
called my parents and said, your son just overdosed in Rocky Point. You need to come pick him up. My brother and brother-in-law drive in the middle of the night to come get me in this emergency room in, in Rocky Point, Mexico, and drive me home. And the next day, my family does their best to do this like really weak intervention. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't have a problem. I'm not going to re I'm not stopping my life for 30 days and going to rehab. There was this like, like I have stuff to do, which I had nothing going on. Like there was nothing, wow. nothing happening for me, but I just wasn't ready. Was there true? Like when you heard them talking to you, could you feel the reflection of truth? I didn't hear shit. I wasn't really? ready. So yeah. you didn't even hear. I was, it wasn't a reflection of a truth you knew. It was just like, you guys are way off. Yeah. And so I would like go to this overdose in Mexico, just a bad, like bad luck. Completely delusional. Wow. And so I would go to AA meetings to keep them off my back. So I wouldn't have to go to rehab. And I, my mindset in these AA meetings was I'll never be like these people. So I'm going to these meetings in my mind to incentivize myself to never end up like them as if I'm better than them. Wow. That's the where power of the mind, hey? Like the power of yeah, identity denial and, and just denial. like lack of ownership and all of that and, and not seeing that my family was like scared out of their minds that I was going to die. And yet I just wasn't ready. So that's what I would do. I would go into these meetings and I didn't hear shit. Would you tell your story and stuff at AA too? Back then I would share a little bit of it, but like way different than when I was finally ready eventually. Yeah. You'd be more like performative. Yeah, totally. Yeah, just like, and, and that was even early on in treatment, you know, I mean, in meetings because I was so worried about what other people thought. So I was like scripting what I was going to say so I could like drop wow. a nugget and like, yeah, instead <laughs> of just being honest, right? Yeah. And so, so yeah, it took multiple rehab stints to where finally I remember being in rehab for the second time and just lying there in bed and whatever my perception of God was, was like, I was like, God, just tell me what I need to do to get it right this time. Please tell me what I need to do. And I was like waiting for this voice. And that night, every night in, in treatment typically, or every day, they'll bring in 12 step meetings. And that first night it was a pills anonymous meeting. And these two guys come in and they start the meeting and they start saying things like get a sponsor, work the steps with that sponsor, get a service commitment. And I heard it. Wow. I heard it for the first time. I'd been going to meetings for a couple of years before that, and I never heard you that. You never heard those, like, I never heard those it. invitations, those sentences. Nope. Wow. And so, like, I asked God to speak to me and tell me what I need to do. And then I heard it Send in that. these dudes. Yeah. yeah, these two dudes come in and they say this, the same things everybody else has been saying. It's like, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Yeah, well, so true. I needed to be beat down so bad in my addiction to finally hit my knees and say, okay, I surrender. What precipitated the actual, does God show me the way? Was there a circumstance in your life at that moment? There wasn't a major, like the, you would think again, the overdose, right? Yeah. There was like, there wasn't anything as bad as that that happened. It got to the point where I would wake up every single day at five, six in the morning and not think about breakfast, coffee, certainly. Well, I had morning rituals, but they weren't what they are today. <laughs> yeah. It was reach for my pill bottle because I would wake up with anxiety and fear of like just dealing with the day. It wasn't about getting fucked up, taking these pills. It was about feeling normal. So I would get reach for the pills, take them on an empty stomach. 20 minutes later, they would start to kick in and I would just feel this like, uh, yeah. like what a breath does for me today is what the pills huh. did. Just this like warm, soothing feeling over my body. And then I could step foot outside my door, not be afraid for a couple hours until the pills would start one. to wear off. 
And then the obsession of the mind would start to come again. And, you know, I was getting prescriptions from my psychiatrist for Xanax. My, at the time, having six surgeries on my knee. Now, I could get any painkillers from any doctor. All I had to do is go in and show my medical records and go in and with a limp and lie about the pain. Where the truth is, like, I've had seven surgeries on my left knee, and I don't even take Advil or anything. And I don't even think I really needed it then. I was just, like, manipulating these doctors so that I could always have something, but they would give me a month prescription and that month prescription would be gone in like five days. Holy shit. And so then there's, you know, three weeks of trying to figure out how am I going to get pills, you know, and you just figure it out. You find ways, you know, people that are not necessarily living on the streets, but you just find them that where they're not coming from a doctor or you go to Mexico. Like I did, those were the lengths that I would go to just to feel normal. And so it just became a cycle of like waking up every single day and eventually being sick and tired of of being sick and tired. So there wasn't like that last circumstance. It was just like, I finally surrendered. And when I got in to rehab, that's when I got curious. I was like, what the fuck happened to my life? How many years has this been? When baseball ended for me to my first rehab, I think was like six years Wow. Yeah. So you've been living on that cycle for six years? Yeah, I wouldn't say completely. Like the first, like the pills, the first couple of years, like I would take them, but it wasn't like a heavy grip. I smoked a lot of pot back in the day. And so that kind of replaced the pills at times. But it was really like the last four years of just like every single day trying to find a way to numb out and ultimately just feel normal and be comfortable in my own skin for a couple hours. The willingness came when I was just so beat down and I'm like, yeah. fine. Just my first sponsor said, nobody's ever relapsed that has done everything their sponsor told them to do. And I'm like, fine, just tell me what I need to do. Just tell me and I will do it. My way is not working. Like I'm in rehab. It's <laughs> yeah. not working out yeah. well at all. And so that was like the first step into personal development or working on myself because you have therapy and you're doing 12 step work and you're starting to understand. And that curiosity of like, what happened to my life? And what I came to understand that when I stopped blaming the doctors and the doctor that screwed me over and let go of that resentment and my family who didn't understand and my friends who left me hang in like I understand why they wouldn't want to hang out with me anymore. <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> like, I would, I yeah, got it. I got it. And so to finally take ownership of that, I came to understand that I didn't want to feel the emotional pain mm-hmm. of the loss of my identity, the loss of my purpose, the loss of the love of my life of baseball. And so I numbed it every day for years through pills and through drugs and alcohol. Alcohol was like not really a problem for me. It was more the other stuff, especially like the pills that kind of slowed you down. That's really what I loved. It's interesting because like alcohol, yeah, it doesn't really stand a chance against one of those other ones. And I guess, you know, I think of Gabor Mate's statement where he says, the wrong question is why the addiction, the right question is why the pain. That to me is just like the essence of like what is unresolved in there. And I'm curious with baseball, maybe it's in there now, but with sports and universities, when someone experiences the ending or the retirement or the thing, do they have therapists to navigate? Like, was there support potentially available? Were they like, hey, Donnie, we got to make sure that we're navigating emotionally this process for you because it's painful or no? I don't think it was available. I didn't, I wasn't aware of it. Certainly given everything that I was going through, the extensiveness of this surgery, it being my senior year, knowing baseball was over, you would think that would have been presented to me and it wasn't. And sadly, I don't know how much of that is today. I think it's a lot better 
But that's a big part of why I choose to share my story and a lot of the work that I do with with other athletes now is helping them in that transition because that is what almost killed me was putting all my identity and all my purpose into this sport. And I tell my athletes that I work with today is you better know who you are when your sport ends. Because whether it ends with this awesome retirement ceremony or it ends on a dime with an injury, if you don't know who you are, it's going to be rough. And so figure out mm, who you are. And that's why, you know, Darren and I, and I, that's our relationship started as coach client where I was coaching him and it's evolved into like, this awesome love story and best friends and having the podcast now comeback stories. But early on, it was like figuring out who are you beyond the sport? And that's what I'm so passionate about today because man, it's a struggle and it's not just sport. It could be a coaching client that I have. That's a um, empty nester mom that has all of her identity has been in being a mom. And now 18 years old, this the son or the daughter is about to leave and they're in that same exact predicament I was in. Yeah, and it's so easy to source our identity from things that give us validation, that give us worth, that give us value, and nothing wrong with the experience of feeling valued as a mother or a father or an athlete. If you don't have value outside of those things, you're right. Then you're left in disarray. It's like another, I don't think we'd often frame the experience. Like I have friends who's when their kids move out, yeah, there's this like, who am I? And I don't think we'd often frame that as like, a, oh, yeah, you really need an intervention then or like that's a rock bottom. But for a lot of people, it is. It is this like I'm at this new point in my life of reinvention, of repossibility. Of I also think it's so true of when we're in our 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, insert whatever age that we're like, wait, I don't even know who I am. I forgot about myself. I'm not sure I've ever remembered myself. And I think there's so much grief that comes with, like, I'm curious about your experience in rehab because all of a sudden you go from numbing and and sort of avoiding or turning away from the pain and not having the resources and tools, not even knowing you needed to, to all of a sudden, like, orienting yourself head on into it and holding the complexity of that. Like, whew. Yeah, as you're talking through that, I'm visualizing myself in rehab and I'm looking up at the, in one of the main rooms are the 12 steps that are there and I'm looking at them and they look so daunting at the time. Some of those steps are Making an amends. You're telling me I'm going to have to go back and like face these people that I've like screwed over or like hurt, right? Like I'm going to have to go do that. And it was like, oh my God, but the steps are in order for a reason. Right. And once I got to that point, step eight, step nine, like having to actually make those amends, I was ready. I'm like, I want to do this because it wasn't about like, you know, what their response was going to be. This amends was for me. Asking for forgiveness was for me so I could be free from like whatever shame, whatever guilt I had of whatever I might have done to that person or said to that person. Mm -hmm. It doesn't even matter their response. They could tell me to fuck off. Like they're not ready for this. It's okay. It's like detaching from the outcome, right? Because it's not about their response. This is about being free. And those 12 steps, I believe, are for everybody. I agree. Like you said earlier, the drinking and the using, the alcohol and the drugs is just a symptom. It's something deeper. I look at those steps sometimes. I'm like, man, that person, that person could use that. Like not giving names, but like I look at them like, if you know, it's not about that. These are about finding freedom and looking at your shit and looking at your resentments that you have, looking at your part in those resentments. Once you look at your part in the resentments, it loosens the grip on the, on the resentment. 
And it kind of changes the story when you can own like, oh, I actually did have a part in that resentment instead of just like ruminating on it, right? Where the story of victimization, where my life truly changed in my sobriety when I just took ownership. Uh, And that tool, like we've talked about it on my podcast and going through breakups and like recently in the last year and a half going through a breakup and just really keep pointing the finger back at me and having the right people around and having the right men around in the men's group. I remember going into this men's group, like as the transition, I was kind of stuck in this fear of like walking through the breakup and I would keep repeating the same thing every week when it was my turn to share. And my friends would be like, it looks like you are really rooted in fear. And I was at the time. But to be able to get that outside help and to just keep looking at my stuff, look at the red flags that I chose to ignore in the beginning, right? like really just owning that, man, that is like, it's like participating in your own rescue, right? No one's coming to save us. But once we do participate in our own rescue and we take the action, the love and support that Uh, surrounds us after you take that action is, it's amazing. I get the chills just sharing that. Yeah, it's so powerful to think that when we start to take responsibility for our choices, what gets us somewhere. And not even, I think one of the hard parts of turning towards trauma or like experiencing, like you said, the surgery, right? This, you are the victim of an experience. But how do you hold the complexity of being the victim of something, which many people, I'm sure you listening, watching, you have been. So not not experiencing or desiring to, or wanting to negate that, Because I think that's really hard. You see that a lot of when we talk about being stuck as a victim, that's where it gets really complex because like I've been really navigating recently just the experience of where does martyr energy still live in me? Because I, you know, I was working with my coach and she's like, you can't be in abundance and in martyr. They're totally in opposition. One is a siphon of energy. Yeah. And the other one is the experience of energy. Like, oh, that's interesting. Because I think like when you think about holding the complexity of the grief and the possibility and responsibility does that. Like I'm, it's not my fault. What happens? It's not your fault. You got a surgery, but what do I do with all the things? I don't know. As humans, I think because that's not modeled for us generally, we either see people stuck in one or stuck in another, never looking at the thing. And I'm like, wow. Cause when you take responsibility, you're right. You're free. And I find, and I still find this, that when I have a new awareness where I'm taking responsibility for something, I then am grieving every moment I now can see through the lens of someone who is responsible for that. I'm like, wait, I have choice. I made this choice now and I'm free. I could have made that choice a thousand times in my life. I think when I finally just got sober, like sober from alcohol, which was more of my way of numbing, but certainly not, I didn't always overconsume. But it was just like a constant part of my social experience. That's when I was like, oh my God, I, there's so much brilliance in the things I'm trying to avoid. But like, like, I think of this 12 steps and I'm like, I've seen, you know been to AA meetings with close friends. And when I see the 12 steps, I'm like you, I'm like, everybody needs that. Like every personal growth program is kind of structured Mm-mm. very similarly, right? Recently, I had Shervin on the podcast, who's the founder of the supplement company Symbiotica. And I discovered Chavine far before I discovered the supplement company. And I just fell in love with how he lives his life with such integrity and intention. And it made me dive deeper into his products. I kept seeing the brand pop up everywhere. And now daily I take the vitamin C, I take the D3K2, I take the magnesium, and I also take the creatine. 
but they have a whole lineup of products. The reason I love the company is they design sophisticated, organic, nutritional formulations that are scientifically proven to increase vitality and longevity, and they really fill the nutritional gaps that most of us have from our typical modern day diet. Their supplements are sourced from only the highest quality plant-based ingredients, and they utilize the most advanced absorption technology, which is really important to me. So if you currently take supplements or you're looking to find a company that makes great ones and sourcing from a company that has great integrity and uses organic products and the highest quality products, then Symbiotica, you got to give them a try. So if you go to Symbiotica.com and you use the code Groves at checkout, you get 15% off. So you just put in my last name, G-R-O-V-E-S, you get 15% off anything. I mean, they have so many different supplements. I'm sure there's the right fit for you. And you can get up to 45% off when you bundle a few products. So try out a few of them and see which ones you like. So again, go to Symbiotica.com, use the code Groves at checkout, and you'll save some money. What was the hardest step for you? And I mean, there's probably one that's most common. Yeah, I mean, step one is just admitting I had a problem. Like, oh, that's yeah. the only step you have to go 100% in, and you have to actually admit. Oh, or, like, you can't have any, yeah, like, like you have kind to, of my problem. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's that level of acceptance, right? And I mm-hmm. that came up for me as you were just sharing, where if we can accept, like, taking personal responsibility for your life is actually how you take your power back. Right. So if something terrible has happened to you, whether it's self-inflicted or it's trauma by somebody else, like we do have to accept that it's happened. And like, that's the first step, So the first step is the first step, no matter what. Yeah, accepting, admitting that I have a problem, accepting it, right? I think it's that whole idea of, I forget who created this equation, but it's pain times resistance equals suffering. And pain times- I've never heard that. Pain, it might be Joseph Campbell, pain times acceptance- equals freedom. So pain times resistance. Resisting is wanting the moment to be something that it's not. Whether you've been abused, whether somebody did something terrible to you, we do have to accept it. And acceptance does not mean we need to like it. Yeah, that's not approval. Yeah, it doesn't mean it wasn't fucked up and wrong. It means that we have to accept that it's happened. And when we can bring that level of acceptance in recovery, we say acceptance is the answer to all of our problems. But again, it's not approval. It's just accepting that it's happened and then trying to, when we work through it, we can attach the proper meaning to it where it becomes, it's not the event that happens. It's the meaning that we attach to it. And there's always growth. There's always lessons. The pain, your pain, my pain is why we're sitting here. Like, this is what connects us. Pain is part of the shared human experience. And you would think like during COVID, (laughs) we'll bring this topic in, like you would have thought that because no one was immune to that, right? So you would have thought that that would have brought everybody together. Pain, suffering, this is what connects us. But it actually created separation. Why? Unfaced fear and unfaced trauma. Everybody's shit came up. And so I just think it's important. This is like another reason why it's important to do our own work and understand that my pain might look different than your pain, but we're all the same and we're all just trying to find freedom from that pain. And some will hide it, numb it out in drugs and alcohol. Some will hide in their work. Some will close their hearts and others will transmute that pain into a greater purpose. And I don't know about you, but man, that's what has set me free. Yeah, it feels way better. <laughs> you oh know? My gosh. Like it's like, oh, hey, by the way, my life is messy. Here's how messy it is. Here's what I've learned about it. I think in a way that is also like when I think about the early writing that I did when I first started writing in like 2013, 2014, was by writing and sharing how I was feeling and what was coming up for me, I was finally just starting to excise my pain. 
Like I was starting to take it out of me where I normally I was hiding it or even I was excising and like outing myself as having an interest in relationships and love. And like, who was I to have an interest in those things having had a relationship end? I was by society standards a failure. And I really had to, I remember early on someone would say, well, why would I take relationship advice from someone who's single? I said, great, you don't have to. That's the first beautiful part of choice and discernment. The second part is is that it held the same paradigm and the same belief that if you're in a relationship, it means you're good at them, which I'm like, that's definitely not fucking true. <laughs> like, I've been in them and I wasn't good yeah. at them. I think we all can relate to that. So, yeah, I think there is something about, you know, sharing and vulnerability and whether you want to do that on a on a large platform or a social platform or on a podcast or on a blog, you want to do it anonymously. You know, it doesn't matter, or even if it's just a letter, you know, or a, a conversation in a group or with friends. I think it's just taking it out and being like, you know, like you said about the amends. I think amends is really powerful in that we don't speak so that we get approval of it. Although to hear the impact we've had, of course, in those circumstances, but we speak to hear our own voice, to like hear our own desire for resolution. I think to be proud of ourselves, you know, like in spite of not wanting to have this hard conversation, I'm doing it. And even if the relationship doesn't work or it doesn't grow or it doesn't heal, I am healing. I'm curious your thoughts on I love on that. that. And I feel like whether it's sharing or even journaling, I believe that like it's about getting out what's inside of us. And if we don't get it out, it just turns on us and eats us up from the inside out. And for me, my whole trajectory of my career in life changed when I shared my story. So I was a, two years into my teaching yoga. I've been teaching yoga 10 years now. And two years in, I did this leadership training. Do you know Sean Korn? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <sighs> I love her so She's much. She's so great. She, she made, she changed like everything. She's like OG. Yeah, OG. Like I always say the real yoga, not the Instagram <laughs> yoga. Like she's, she's, yeah, she's, a dear friend of mine now, but the first time I met her, I was at Wonderlust taking her class and she starts talking about like, well, she has us in like lizard pose, which is like a deep hip opener pose. And she's like saying things, they're just doing the best they can with what they have. She's like talking about resentments. I'm like, who is this chick? She's like, is she in recovery? She's speaking my language. So I went up to her afterwards and just introduced myself. And she's, she said, I had this leadership training. It's in a month. It's in Minnesota called off the mat into the world. And I'm like, I'm there. So I go there again and she has us in that pose again. And she says the words, how dare we not? And for me, it was when she said that it was, how dare I not share my story? Mm. There's people I'm teaching in Scottsdale, Arizona, and there's a lot of like money there and materialism and people are showing up in their cars and looking all good on the outside, but I know they're dying on the inside. How dare I not share my story? So we were tasked with going back into our community, creating a service project. And I created something called Sunday Yoga Service. And we did a monthly yoga event at this really cool resort. And the the first event we did before the event started, I shared my story. Everything changed after that day. It humanized me as a teacher, which for whatever reason, maybe the people put teachers on a pedestal or it humanized me. I was started to get messages about how what I was sharing helped this person heal. They had just lost their husband a month ago to alcoholism. So I found my voice. I found my purpose. Everything completely changed after that day. So powerful. Yeah. And so like even Darren, you know, Darren, my co-host who, who plays for the Las Vegas Raiders, he's been sober, I believe five, five and a half years now. 
he did the same thing. So I connected with him on Real Sports has their HBO Hard Knocks. Not, yeah. It's not Real Sports. HBO Hard Knocks has that behind the scenes they do every season. Yeah. They did it with the Raiders and I'm sitting there in bed one night watching it and this dude comes on and he starts sharing his story about addiction. And he's like a no-name person because he basically had been playing for the Ravens, got kicked out, got suspended for a year because he'd failed so many drug tests. And then the Raiders picked him up. So he's sharing his story. I'm like, who is this dude? He's now doing it on a way bigger platform than I am. But I had done the same thing. And I'm like, I've got to connect with this guy. So I reached out to him on Instagram, (laughs) slid into his DMs. And at the time he had like 3,000 followers. And I'd been working with the Phoenix Suns back in Arizona and Tyron Matthew, who now plays for the Saints, but was playing for the Cardinals and other athletes. And I just mentioned, like, I work with athletes. This is what I do. I'm also sober. I'd love to connect. And he's like, I'd love to work with you. And Two weeks later, I'd fly out to Vegas and the dude picks me up in a, you know, his 2017 Jeep Grand Cherokee, like so humbled, like where he like humble living. He's such a great dude. So different. But that's what connected us. He did the same thing on a bigger stage. And like, you know, it started as this coach client relationship. And now we're like best friends and have this podcast and our mission has always been to reach as many people as possible, just to remind them that they're not alone. Because yeah. at my bottom, I was saying, I, I'm alone. Nobody understands. The only story that matters is the one we tell ourselves. I was telling myself, I'm alone. Nobody understands, which was total bullshit, but I was believing it. And it had become my reality to the point of isolation, laying on a couch in Cincinnati, Ohio with nobody around. That story, right? Basically, I created it. Yeah. And so to be able to have guests like you on or like a Michael Phelps or Darren's story where people put them on pedestals and think they don't have shit to share their stories, it hijacks or it bankrupts that story of I'm alone, like nobody understands. And that destroys that. Yeah. Yeah. Obliterates it. Who knew that that would be, you know, the gateway to it? You know, I, I remember hearing, I think it was Lisa Nichols say that no one identifies with your perfection. Like literally nobody. Everybody identifies with imperfection. And I thought that's so fascinating. It's like if we're willing to out our imperfections and not just be with them, but love them, embrace them, it teaches other people how to love their own story. And I think as we people live that out loud, they're practicing it. It models or templates it for other people. And I think this is part of healing is that when you do that, it's just this contagion effect, you know, and And we start to see the value in the story that we think is actually something we need to hide. I think that's one of the greatest ironies about the things we're ashamed of is actually what lives in them is actually the path to never doing that thing again or being that way again. And yet we hide it in a box, think it has no value, but it's actually, I would say, the most valuable thing we hold. But if society doesn't model the value or the restoration that's possible that happens through healing addictions, that happens through, I, I mean, all those steps, I think if anyone wants to walk them, would completely transform their fucking life. It's like, okay, wait, I'm going to first surrender to that. I'm maybe not great at communicating. I'm not great at relationships. I have some red flags. I talk about everyone else's, but I got a few, you know, and, and starting to just take ownership and then the responsibility piece. I mean, and then the amends part, like I know a lot of people get stuck at that part. 
right? At the part where you yeah, have they to get stuck there, out. or they get stuck at the fourth, the fourth step, with is which is looking at your character defects and looking at resentments. A lot of people when they get out of rehab, they stop there and typically will relapse before they get to that fourth step. When I did my fourth step, and you basically have a mirror up and you're looking at your shit, and mine just screams selfishness and self centeredness. I remember looking at it and having this pounding headache as this mirror was being held up, where everything was so about me, and I would put everything else second before my drugs and my pills to the point of just hurting my family. God, the pain I must've put my mom through and the worry every single day, worrying if like her baby boy was going to be alive the next day. Oof, man. Have you had her on the pod? <clears throat> no. Wow. That's not a bad idea. Yeah. It's like, she's a big part of my why today. Cause I, what breaks my heart more than anything in the world are the friends and families that get left behind when one of their loved ones dies from the disease of addiction or mental health or suicide. I've lost one too many friends to this disease. And yes, it hurts losing that friend. But where I go is the aftermath and the family and the friends that have to pick it up and live with that. That's where my mind goes. So I think about my mom and that's, I have a a nonprofit called The Aftermath that supports those exact people. Yeah. So it's like, it's what pulls me forward and I can make a living amends. My mom will be up in Sedona. She comes on my retreats. Like, oh, she coming? Yeah. Yeah. She's 81 years old. She still teaches third grade. And she, she's the one that got me into yoga, by the way, too. So at my rock bottom, she's doing yoga before yoga is cool, is what I used to say. (laughs) But like, she kept saying, you need to go to yoga. And I just, I'm like, yoga's for girls and hippies. I'm not doing that shit. (laughs) Meanwhile, I'm like dying physically, spiritually. And I go to one class with her at like some 24 hour fitness, like gym yoga. And I did that class and I knew I would do yoga the rest of my life from that one class, just from a physical standpoint, the reprieve I was getting on like my, so I was favoring my left leg for 20 years, just having, I had my first three surgeries before I graduated high school. So my knee was always hurting, but the rest of my body was so banged up from favoring my left leg. Compensating. So the reprieve I got in my right hip and my low back from these stretches I was doing at the time, (laughs) I knew, but little did I know what it would do for the mind and the soul. So thank you, mama, for getting me into yoga, because I feel like going back to the 12 steps, I love the 12 steps and they were an essential part and an access point to my sobriety. But my personal opinion, the one thing missing from those 12 steps is the mind-body connection. There's nothing in those 12 steps that addresses the idea that our issues are in our tissues and that the body remembers everything. There's no movement or mindful movement. Mm, And that's why I love yoga so much because when you're breathing and moving mindfully, you're moving stuck energy. Energy can't be destroyed, but it can be shifted. So as we work through and we're holding that pigeon pose and all this emotions coming up, that's where we can start to work through it. So that's where Sean Korn came in and really taught me about the, the power of the mind-body connection through yoga, but then also Sean's help with taking your yoga off the mat, right? Yeah, People like, are like, don't I can't. just be here, be mindful. Like, yeah. Like maybe take that into your relationship. That's exactly it. And that's what I tell the people, especially men. Oh, I can't do yoga. I can't even touch my toes. I'm like, yeah, you can just bend your knees. And it's not, they're like, I'm not good at yoga. I'm like, your yoga will get better when your relationships get better. So it's actually using the the tools and taking those tools off the mat. That's what it's all all about. I remember the first time I went to yoga was at this place, my favorite studio, of course, original studio. I think that's probably true for most people. It's called Yoga Passage in Calgary. And my friend Kristen owns it. And I remember the first class I went to, I believe it was her class actually. And I was in a world I'd never been in. I'd been in the gym and playing sports, but never in this like, it wasn't power oriented. It was like strength, a different kind of strength, a presence. And I spent so much of my life running from 
thought by being active, by being busy, by being extroverted. And it was interesting when I would go to classes, I was going through a breakup. When I go to classes, I would inevitably hear exactly what I needed to hear from the teacher. And I remember kind of feeling like this woman teaching me has no idea that she is like an angel. Like she has no idea that I remember one time they were saying that she was saying that when you're a little kid and you hurt your knee, the first thing you do is hold your knee with your hands. And she said, there's healing properties in your hands. So if you ever need to heal, put your hands where you need to heal. And it was like instant. I was like, oh, I need to put my hands over my heart. Mm. And I could like feel the warmth of that. Yeah, I think yoga has such a, such a power to it. And I'm curious then your process, like as you went from rehab, did you ever relapse? Um, yeah, so I did, I had three years sober. Thank you for asking. Cause this yeah. is a huge part of my story and yeah. I, I always share it and I haven't shared it yet. I had three years sober and stopped doing the work, stopped going to meetings, stopped being of service. I strayed away from the middle of the herd and got picked off. And I was actually playing, it was like a sober softball league and I had hurt my right knee and ended up having to have like a really minor, I had a meniscus tear. Like it was the first, I've had seven surgeries on my left knee and this was the first one on my right. But a couple months leading up to that injury, I stopped doing the work. And so I, I went, went ahead and had this surgery and I woke up from the surgery and I loved the way that I felt. And six days later, I was back in the doctor's office lying about the pain and getting more painkillers. So right at three years of being like all in and doing the work, understanding like the freedom I was getting from sobriety I stopped, I strayed away, got picked off, had this surgery, minor surgery, like nothing compared to this massive one I've had on my left knee. And I'm just like six days later lying about it. And that went on for like six to eight months. Nothing like crazy bad happened. But once you have a taste of that freedom, it gets messy. It gets so messy in your internal world. And so you know, you know, you know, the other life that's available to you. Yeah. You've had a taste of it. And so on that, yeah. I knew once I started taking the pills again that I was fucked and I couldn't stop on my own. So I never went back to rehab, but I went to a five-day detox and I had my brother take me. I'm like, okay, I like the, I like pick May 5th, 2013, Cinco de Mayo. I like the number five. And I just chose, I obviously should have went a few months before that, but I just like was so stuck in it. So I went to that detox. It was a messy, like not of like, I needed to be there. You know, it wasn't any kind of like posh rehab center at all. <laughs> yeah. I just needed five days of safe, like a safe space where I wasn't going to get influence. I could detox my body. And yeah, since then, so I'll have 10 years sober, May 5th. Awesome, man. Congrats. Yeah. yeah. And I, I call it a sobriety 2.0 because I almost exactly a year ago, I did my first psilocybin journey, which, you know, I feel like today I'm more sober than ever. And somebody listening might say, well, you're technically not sober. And I'm like, that's okay. Yeah, there's a lot of controversy <laughs> in that space. I do think one thing that's fascinating about like AA, for example, is it does tend to have an identity that's inflexible, you know, and one of the challenges I had with it in that people are so religious about it that there's not flexibility in it. And I understand that there's probably a lack of flexibility because everyone would negotiate. And then because totally. addicts are like, I'll just have that on Tuesday. It doesn't <laughs> count. Step five, you know, Sober 2.0, you know. I think there's actually a program called Sober 2.0. It's Recovery 2.0. Tommy yeah, Rosen. who's so good. He's so good. Like he's, he's never tapped. I've had conversations with about plant medicine. He's good. He's like on that level already because he, him and his partner, they, you know, they do yoga, Kundalini yoga. He's incredible. incredible. I saw him speak probably eight years ago or nine years ago in Vancouver. 
and just happened to be co-speaking with another guy I went to watch. And I saw Tommy Rosen speak and I was like, oh, this guy's stuff is epic. Yeah. And he was kind of revolutionizing that, like bringing a lot of the things you're talking about that you felt were missing. I also found that with Laura um, McCown. McCown. Yeah. She's so great. Yeah. I've had her on the pod twice. She's just so fire too. So you relapse, you go back, detox, and then did you work the steps again? Yeah. Because then you're, I guess you're supposed to, right? So you work the steps again. Dive back in, work the steps again, and just have been all in since then. How'd you process the shame? I think that's the, is like, I think often we make promises and that's important, right? Public promises, commitments to relationships, then we relapse and then. I know for me, that's one of those things that you like got to go fucking head on or else it'll eat you. Yeah. So I'm curious. How you I hit out. I went to, I went right back to meetings, but I went to, I went to meetings in a different neighborhood <laughs> for like a month. Cause you have to yeah. pick up a 24 hour or a newcomer chip for, you know, the first 30 days you got to announce that you're, so there was this like, there's so much power in that humility, but <sighs> man, is. And I, you know, this idea of what other people think of me was so rooted in me for so long from, um, I'm an achiever on the Enneagram test, getting that validation through performance. Baseball is so statistical, your stats, your performance, like it matters what people think. It matters what the coach thinks. If you're going to start or not, it matters whether you get a scholarship, like it all was so rooted around performance and that was so deep rooted in me. So unlearning and peeling that out. And especially in the last year and a half through some of the plant medicine journeys that I've been on have been so helpful because it was just, I just cared so much about what other people thought. And we just had Michael Gervais on our podcast and he was talking about how caring what other people think is the modern day saber tooth tiger. And I was like, wow, I've never heard that. No, what is? Caring what other people think oh. is what's like hijacking our lives That's where we're looking and we're yeah. caring so much about that, right? Social and, media just amplifies oh, that. Yeah. Yeah. And to have that freedom. And so for me, when I did my psilocybin journey back last January, I, this is kind of a funny story, but part of my journey was I was getting very gassy in the journey and my, (laughs) my, my teacher, like you're blindfolded five hours, you're in this immersive journey, totally going inward. But there lots of people in the room. No, just me. Oh, damn. So you can't even hide that one. It was a private one. And I just remember like holding it in because like she's sitting right there and I'm like, what's she going to think? And then I had this thought, like she's led hundreds of people through journeys and I'm sure they're doing way worse shit than farting you know what I mean (laughs) and so like I eventually like let that go like literally let it go and I just went so much deeper into the journey but part of the integration that's powerful right yeah it seems small but it's so small afterwards but what the integration for me was actually sharing sharing because it showed me that I wow I still do care I didn't think I cared what anybody else thought anymore but obviously I do And so sharing it on a social media post that I did the psilocybin journey with this identity of being sober was something very important for me to do as an integration piece mm, because I'm I, sure you faced yeah one or two yeah, yeah. like one or two comments and posts or comments or DMs and everything else was so supportive and I'm so thankful for the the men in sobriety that gave me permission one of my close friends Andrew and Luke Story who talks about it so often oh, yeah Luke Story does talk yeah. about that. Yeah. And those were the guys that gave me permission and other friends that I respect the hell out of that have long-term sobriety that I know their intention. They allowed me, gave me permission and allowed it to feel safe for me to do it. And then, so me posting that, like what's transpired with other friends in sobriety and other people, you know, giving them an access point to my teacher or giving them feedback has been so cool to be able to share that. For people navigating that 
potential of, oh yeah, I am sober and I'm also curious about psilocybin. What do you recommend for people? I know, you, you know, that's not the work that you do, but what do you recommend for people in terms of seeking counsel for that? Yeah, I think it's like, what's your intention, right? And my intention early on was like, I wanted to be closer to God, like have a deeper spiritual connection for the last year, like I'm doing a lot of work, but that spirituality and the the praying and really feeling that connection with source, God, universe, higher power, whatever you want to call it, felt like it was missing. So I just wanted to go deeper and find that. So that was my true intention. It wasn't, an, and the difference is like, you feel all the feels in the medicine journeys. You're not numbing out anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're not escaping anything. It is, the medicine is bringing you to the thing. Yeah. And so like one of the most profound stops on my journey was going through this unbelievable grief of the loss of one of my dogs who I had to let go of in my breakup in the relationship. Oh man. And I was so attached to this dog and loved him so hard. And it's what kind of kept me in the relationship longer because I was so afraid of what was going to happen with that. I remember being in the journey and just like snot bubble crying and making this fist being like, I love you, Bubba. I love you, but I got to let you go, buddy. I got to let you go. And I couldn't do it. And then eventually I, I released my hand and let him go. And it was so sad, so beautiful, visceral grief. I've never felt grief in my like true, like actual processing like that. I'll never forget that. And then Somewhere on the stop, like a few stops later, this little brown Frenchie shows up <laughs> in the journey. And I shit you not, it's the, it's the exact dog I have today. <laughs> so like wild. his eyes, his energy and everything. And I wouldn't have been able to see him if I wasn't able to release Bubba. So that whole idea of release and invite, like the and one. begin, yeah, you know, the bridge. Yeah, you got to sacrifice. You have to let go. And the bigger, like the sacrifice usually Something else is you're making space for something new. And so that grief, there was no numbing out. That was so beautiful and so hard at the same time. And I'll never forget it and understand what it feels like to actually grieve fully something. Yeah, it's such a interesting, again, complexity to hold because it's so fucking powerful and beautiful. And yet it grows us in a way that we hold something we've never held. And I think we're often afraid we're going to get, we're going to slip away in the heaviness of it. And I think that's why it's great to have, like you knew you had someone right beside you. It's great to have a friend or someone who's like a tether to like, Hey, you're actually okay. This grieving is good. We're with you as you grieve. We don't really model that in the process of life. You know, so much of our materialism or addictions are fed by our inability to even be with that. And, you know, it makes sense physically that I can't actually lift and hold something new if I'm still holding something old, right? And so it's like I have to learn how to put it down in order to pick something up. Like it's just physically that stands as a metaphor for relationships, for, you know, like how do you open your heart fully to someone if there's still parts that are guarded because you haven't processed pain? You know, and to actually think, you know, coming back to what we were talking about earlier, is like it's such a strange thing to believe or know that actually in the thing you're afraid of is actually the gift to the opening. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, where it's the gold so is. fucked up because yeah. you're like, I don't want to go there. And you're like, actually, that's actually where it is. So, hey, if you want to go the other direction, you got to, you got to close the door or like, you know, invite the gift, which. It's, it's where the, where the center in the center of the wound is where your freedom <sighs> lies. Right. It's like festering and you're like, I don't want that. And it's like, but that actually is. 
ask good questions. What do you teach me? How would I grow? Uh, so you go through this journey now and I mean, 10 years in a couple months, that's pretty powerful. Yeah. I'm curious what you're most proud of about yourself in that time and to today, to this moment, what are you, and maybe there's different things along the journey, but what are you most proud of? I think it comes down to just the courage to share my story and then the service I've been able to provide because of that. It's not like I'm spending hours and hours of just like saving the world. All I'm really doing is sharing my story. But I think our most valuable <clears throat> weapon and asset is our story. And to be able to know that all I have to do is really share my story and, and the mess, like share the messy parts and the parts that I'm not so proud of that I can share those that that could actually help someone to remind them that they're not alone. Mm. And so working with, whether it's a coaching client that's sober or not sober, or whether it's an athlete or non-athlete, I share my story so that they can understand that there's going to be no judgment. This is a safe space. That's that word safety. That's what came up in my Bufo journey that I did. So I did the psilocybin back in January and then the Bufo, the toad medicine in August. And that was, I dropped into that left, felt like I was in the presence of God, never saw a face or anything, but felt it like I've never felt anything before. And I just started saying out loud, I'm safe. I'm safe. I'm safe. And it made me realize like my whole life, all I've ever done, everything I've done was just to feel safe, the validation, the approval, people pleasing, caring what other people think. And so to understand that like, oh my God, I'm good. Mm. I don't have to worry about that shit anymore. eh? And then also to be able to provide that safe space for other people. And typically it's just like sharing my story and being honest and I think we're all just looking for that going around our lives, looking for that same level of safety. And once again, it's like people will look for safety by playing it safe, Mm, staying in the relationship. They feel safe being in an abusive relationship, right? Because that's what feels familiar to them. But to be able to understand that, like, sometimes we have to, we have to lean in and let go of something that feels very, very familiar to really like step into our true essence of like freedom and purpose. That's, I like that statement that we're trying to like to seek safety by playing it safe, which is really an illusion. It's such an illusion because there's nothing more unsafe than feeling like you abandon yourself in, with the uh, intention of safety. And how many people will go their whole lives and get to the end of their lives and be scared <clears throat> shitless to die because they haven't lived and they get to the end and then they, they're regretting all of those things that they didn't do because they were trying to be safe. Oh man, it's, it's, I know because when we get to the moments, which I think are like the moments of sobriety of, I accept that I got to turn towards these things now. That is a death, you know, that's a mortality. I mean, if we're willing to face those things, we are free. And so there's no running. <laughs> Fuck. There's whole industries constructed on running <laughs> from our shit, right? Nothing better to monetize. I mean, I think of the endless scrolling of social media. It's such an easy, simple way to run from yourself. And I say that having had done that, you know, it's so easy. And to be mindful of where my addictions skip, like they just make it into socially acceptable, celebrated addictions. You know, I was laughing with a friend yesterday who came on the pod about like, have you ever got your screen (laughs) report? I mean, like, that's like a whole other job. Like, that's how much time we spend in technology and not here. And like, this is, this is the richness, right? Like I've got that screen report 
and it's come up and I've purposely not looked at it because <laughs> yeah, and, and I don't like, like that report. I'm teaching this and I often say that I'm tripping over the stuff I'm teaching all the time. Yeah, but if I'm still struggling with this and maybe have a few tools, it really breaks my heart for the world that like doesn't have these tools and especially our younger generation. Like that, a 12-year-old with TikTok? <sighs> I think there will come a time where there will be a, I hope, uh, and I don't know that it's optional. So it's going to have to either happen through us making conscious decisions, which really the exploitation of energy of attention is not dissimilar to the exploitation of resources and energy. It's just that big tech is much like big oil, you know? And so in order to make changes, we're going to have to make companies not as profitable. And those companies have so much money that they impact lobbying. They impact research. Like you think of all of these, you know, pharma impacts what studies get done, what conversations happen. Same with oil, same with, I mean, same with every movement that has profit in it. The green movement also has some slippery slopes in it too. There's no doubt, no pun intended. And I think tech is going to have that though, where there will be a time where we just don't have the nervous system to hold more scrolling more attention exploitation but i mean that's a whole other there's going to have to be a whole 12 steps for technology sobriety well you have the biggest companies in the world hiring the smartest people in the world to create these algorithms to capture our attention and so this gives me purpose this gives me massive purpose right to actually provide techniques skills practices that actually allow people to bring their attention back to find their center. If we don't have these tools, like, you know, and, and I talk about this with the athletes and Darren that I've worked with where, you know, we're all being pulled, you know, by the world's demand for our, the attention of our mind. Some more than others, you know, the athletes are so much more heightened, especially with social media. So if we don't have these tools that bring us home and find us back to our center, we're gone. Yeah. And so to true. not feel like you're at home or not know that like it's home is where the heart is. You got to come back. But you have to have practices. It's all about the practices, right? Like what we practice grows stronger. And I love, and I've shared this with like every coaching client since you've been on our podcast where I asked you what self-love was and you said habits and rituals. And I'm like, fuck yes, that's exactly what's, it's, it's following through on those, right? Yeah, so true. It's like the most self-confident, the highest self-esteem people are the ones that keep the promises they make to themselves. So when you say you're going to go to the gym in the morning and you don't go, it's so much more than just getting fat or gaining weight, getting out of shape. You said you were going to do something, you didn't do it, and now you feel like shit about it, and you're not feeling great, right? And what's the saying, like, hurt people hurt people. And so if we're not feeling great, but if we can stick to those promises, like, just go all all in on the practices and detach from everything else, and everything else will unfold exactly how it's supposed to because your foundation is so solid, and it's rooted in self-love. I'm curious, what is... If there's one thing that people take from our conversation today, what would it be that you would want them to find practices, find practices that work for you, try them on, be willing in recovery. We use the acronym, honesty, open-minded and willing how the how acronym. So, but that willingness for me, that word willing, willingness equals freedom. The more willing I am to do the work, the more willing I am to help someone else, the more free I can be. So those words run deep, but I think it's just being willing to find practices that work for you. Try on meditation. Try a silent meditation. If it doesn't work, like a shirt doesn't fit, take it off and try, 
you know, try an app, but just try to find a few practices, ideally in the morning. A morning routine has changed my life forever. I used to wake up in the morning and grab my phone and that would be the first thing I would do. And that was such a shaky foundation because I was basically uncomfortable in my skin and a shit show. That was my foundation reaction, social media, emails, texts, all of that stuff. And so I have space and some non-negotiables that I do before I grab my phone. And it's honestly changed my life forever. Yeah, I feel that too. It's like you wake up and go right into the, like the world's busy and everyone has thoughts, feelings, opinions, and new things. Or you enter the world slowly, present. I mean, it's changed my life. And it's easy to fall off that one, you know? But if you have non-negotiable rules, it's like, all right. And I definitely noticed the benefit of that. Like if I'm meditating every morning, first thing I do when I wake up and then going to the gym, working out, mountain biking, whatever I'm doing, my whole day, I'm proud of myself. It's harder for even though sometimes timing, you know, I work out later, but often if I go to work out later, I don't because it's just hard to keep the habit. So I, I agree with you. If you, it's almost like the way you start your day is the way your day goes. It's the foundation. It's yeah. like life is about momentum, right? So it's all positive momentum. And if you win the morning, you win the day, you win the day, you win the week, you win the week, you win yeah. the month. So it's like figuring out what those are for you. If you can establish and stick with it long enough and don't set these, like if you want to start meditating and you're going to start a practice, meditate for one minute a day for a week. And <laughs> yeah. then the next week, maybe go two minutes, but don't start with 10 minutes or 20 minutes. Make it the appropriate chunk size, like big enough to feel attainable or like small enough to feel attainable, but big enough to feel worthwhile and stick with it long enough so that you can actually feel the contrast of when you don't do it, do it for a week. And then if you don't do it, you know, for that next day, you're going to feel the difference, but just don't give up until the miracle happens. Beautiful. Don't give up until the miracle happens. We usually stop right before the fucking miracle. Oh, that's great. I love that. Donnie, thanks so much for coming on. Dude, I'm so grateful for you. I mean, to sit here in the flesh with you and to be, I've been listening to your show, like very loyal listener for years and um, to consider you a close friend now. We've got to spend, we went to the Raiders game and amazing dinners and quality time. I remember just yesterday, I was with my partner listening to one of your podcasts. It was you and Sylvester. And I'm like, there's no one else I would want in my life as like friends and close people than these two guys. And they're my friends now. Like these are my people. Yeah. Yeah. Like to be listening, like these are the people that I look up to and I say, I want what they have. Mm. Right. And so if I have this kind of gift of getting close to people like that, because proximity is power. And so here we are. So thank you for everything that you've done. And again, like, I don't think you'll ever understand the impact that you're making and how many people you're reaching you've impacted me in like more ways than I can explain. So profoundly grateful. Well, thanks, man. And to have you on here is such an honor to share your message and the impact that you have through living what you've been through, owning it, sharing that story and walking with people through it. So appreciate you. Where can people find more of you? My website is just my name, DonnieStarkins.com. It's Donnie with a Y. Instagram is Donnie underscore Starkins. Those are the two main platforms. And I have, I lead like four. And the podcast, Comeback Stories. Yeah, ComebackStories.com. We're on all platforms. Mark's episode is out today here. I'm sure this episode is going to be released (laughs) later, but you'll find... You'll be able to track down some really cool stories. And um, yeah, I lead like four retreats a year, wellness retreats in all my favorite spots. I got one in Sedona this weekend in Tulum in March. And um, I do most of my stuff through coaching, a coaching program called The Shift. So here to support anybody. Right on. So people can find that all on your website? Yep. It's all there. Thanks a lot, brother. Thank you. 